0: Hebrews chapter 2 is the passage we're looking at this morning, uh, this evening. And uh, in the first two chapters of Hebrews, um, the writer has been emphasising that Jesus Christ is both God and man. Uh, So Jesus is truly God. he emphasises in the first chapter, if you look down at chapter 1, verses 1, Of the majesty on high uh, so the writer has uh, been emphasizing that this jesus who um is the subject of this book is himself god he's been particularly interested the writer to show that even the angels are no rival to the son of god the son is immeasurably superior even to the angels So look down again at chapter one, verse five, where we read, um, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Why do the angels worship him? God alone is worthy of worship they worship the son because he is god but the writer also wants to highlight the fact that jesus really is human his humanity is real humanity and so in chapter 2 over the page in, in verse 9 uh, we read this uh, we read but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Uh, Jesus, the writer says, was for a little while made lower than the angels. That is to say, he became human. Uh, He didn't leave his crown in, in heaven. He didn't leave the glory of heaven and become an angel when he became God incarnate in the incarnation. But he left his crown and he became human in a sense then the writer is saying that he was made lower than the angels and the writer goes on and he says in verse 10 that it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering so here is this jesus who the writer to the hebrews is Uh, Presenting to us, he is God and he is man, he is human. And at this stage in in the letter, the writer is showing us something of why he became human. Why did Jesus, the Son of God, become human? Well, uh, two headings uh, this evening. The first one is this Jesus became human so that he might be made perfect through suffering. So that he might be made perfect through suffering. Now, that probably sounds a little bit strange to you. How was Jesus, how was the Son of God made perfect? How can we possibly say that Jesus was anything other than perfect? Well, it's more straightforward than it might seem to us at first glance. The writer isn't referring to Jesus being made perfect in a moral sense but rather in the sense he was made perfect for the role that he was appointed to. Uh, In verses 14 and 15, we're told that he was appointed to be the deliverer, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He was appointed to be the deliverer. In verse 16, we're told that his role was to help the offspring of Abraham rather than the angels. That was his role. In verse 17, we're told that he was appointed to be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And so to effectively make sacrifice for the sins of the people. And in order for him to fulfill this role that we're reading about, in order for him to be fit for purpose, he was made perfect through suffering. Uh, if you decide to run a marathon it's probably a good idea for you to invest in a good pair of running trainers and you can go to some sports shops where they will ask you to carry out all sorts of exercises so that they can put together a running shoe that is tailor-made for you that is just right for you so You'll go to their sports shop and they'll watch you running on a treadmill for a few minutes so they can determine whether your foot leans one way or leans the other way while you run. Uh, they'll ask you to bend your knees and do some squats so that they can uh, see what your foot does when it's under pressure. And they might even take some sort of mold of the bottom of your foot and put some insoles through like a laminating machine and uh, mold these insoles to the shape of the sole of your foot. And the results of all of that Is that you come out of the shop a lot poorer than you went into the shop, but you come out of the shop with a pair of running shoes that are perfect for you. Uh, Now, it's not the case that you come out of the shop with a pair of running shoes that are perfect for everyone. It's not the case that those running shoes are perfect for everyone with the same size feet as you. It's not that they're a perfect running shoe. But it is, the, it is that they're perfect for you. They're perfect for the role of being on your foot as you run. And it's a little bit like that with Jesus here. The writer isn't saying that he was made perfect. In, in, in and in some sense, there was some imperfection in Jesus that had to be ironed out of him somehow. But he's saying that he was made perfect for the particular role that he was to fulfill. And the way that he was made perfect for that role, the writer says, was through suffering. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that Jesus took the same human nature that we have. That's the point the writer makes in verse 11. He says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. the writer is pointing out that Jesus has the same human nature that you have. You and he both have one source. That is to say, you are the same. Now, of course, there are many ways that Jesus is different to you. But the point here is that when it comes to his human nature, he is no different to you. When you boil it down to its bare essence... To be human is to have a body and to have a soul and to have both together. And Jesus took on a human body and a human soul. And in so doing, he shares in the same nature that we share in. We have the same source. And because he shares the same nature as us, he is able to suffer, really suffer, truly suffer. If he was going to be perfectly suited for the work that he came to do, it was necessary that he was truly able to suffer. That's why we read in verse 14 uh, that since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Now, we need to ask the question what work did he come to do that meant he had to suffer why in order for him to be made perfect for that work did he have to suffer so this is the second heading for this evening jesus first of all was made perfect through suffering and secondly jesus delivers us from our suffering Jesus suffered so that he might deliver us from suffering. That was the work that he came to do. How do we know that? Well, first of all, the writer quotes from Psalm 22 in verse 12. So if we read from verse 11 of chapter two, uh, he says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying i will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation i will sing your praise why does the writer quote from psalm 22 well he's pointing out that these words are ultimately the words of jesus himself he is the one who this psalm spoke of and he's highlighting the fact that jesus refers to God's people who will be saved through his sufferings as his brothers. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Why is that significant? It's significant because brothers and sisters share in the same flesh and blood. I don't have any biological brothers uh, as much as I remember begging my mum. Uh, and my dad for a brother to play football with when I was younger, Uh, but I do have two sisters And, uh, and we share the same source, we have the same parents, and so we share in the same DNA, the same flesh and the same blood. Uh, there are certain giveaways that we share in the same flesh and blood we each have ginger hair uh, two of us have the same color eyes there's certain similarities in personalities you know how these things work we have the same dna uh, and that's what's going on here that's why isaiah 8 is also quoted in this passage in, in hebrews 2 in verse 13 it says and again i will put my trust in him and again behold i and the children god has given me and the writer can switch illustrations from the relationship between brothers to the relationship between parents and their children. Because his point isn't so much that Jesus and his people have a certain relational dynamic as brothers do or whatever, but his point is that Jesus shares the same human nature as us. And so, Jesus, the one who ultimately speaks the words of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 can refer to us, can refer to his people as brothers and children. And that's why we read in verse 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus shares in our same flesh and blood our same human nature and as a result he is able to suffer as a human being he is able to suffer as we suffer but it's important that we know that jesus didn't suffer in the first place so that he might set us an example a noble example about how we might live but he suffered to deliver us from our suffering. this is what becomes clear in Psalm 22, the Psalm that's quoted in verse 12, because it's a Psalm, as you know, it's it's all about suffering. Why don't we turn there for a moment, read some verses from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, and these words will sound familiar to you. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. Good answer verse six, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads he trusts in the lord let him deliver him let him rescue him he delights in him yet you are he who took me from the womb you made me trust you at my mother's breasts on you was i cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my god i'll go down to verse 16 for dogs encompass me a company of evildoers encircles me they have pierced my hands and feet I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then in verse 19, the psalmist prays that the Lord would come to his aid. He says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then finally, in the last verse, uh, as a result of his sufferings, as a result of the Lord hearing his pray, declares in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Now, we need to note a couple of things about this psalm. The first is that it's not only a psalm about suffering in general but it is a psalm about the suffering of the lord jesus christ in particular he spoke the words of verse 1 when he was suffering on the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me so many of the other descriptions are clearly descriptions that are fulfilled in jesus experience when he was crucified all who see me mock me he trusts in the lord let him deliver him and so on and so on They divide garments. They divide my garments among them and cast my clothing. Uh, For my clothing, they cast lots. Verse 18. The psalm then is describing a level of suffering that we have not experienced. It's describing what the Lord Jesus endured when he died on the cross. So Jesus didn't only suffer as we suffer. He didn't only experience what we experience in this fallen world, but he went beyond our level of sufferings and suffered to the absolute uttermost degree. Because what this psalm is describing is not only a brutal experience of death, but the experience of death under the curse of God. That is what crucifixion meant for the Jews. That's what they would have understood when they read these words. And so, while it's wonderfully true that Jesus took on human flesh so that he might share in our flesh and blood, and so share in all that we experience as flesh and blood in this broken world, so that he might suffer with us, it's far more wonderful and far more significant that Jesus suffered for us. He suffered on our behalf, in our place. And that's the other thing we need to note about this psalm. It shows us that Jesus' sufferings, they are the sufferings that are most significant. In verse 22, the verse that's quoted in Hebrews 2, Jesus declared that as a result of his suffering and as a result of the Lord hearing his prayer, he will tell of God's name to his brothers in the midst of the congregation. He will sing God's praise. See, here is something that he is doing and that he alone can do you know it's difficult to illustrate this but it's a little bit like what batman does in the dark knight rises if you're wondering which one that is it's the one with uh, tom hardy playing bane uh, the bad guy bane with a mask and a deep voice uh, the film with the really weird scene in the middle where, where Batman, Bruce Wayne, finds himself in the middle of some random prison. And I still don't really know how he got there. Um, if you haven't seen it, I'm sure you can imagine uh, what, what I'm about to describe. The basic plot of the film is that there's a battle between Bane and Batman over Gotham City. Uh, Bane wants to destroy the city and so he takes it by force. He blows up all the bridges and the roads out of the city so that nobody can get out and so that all the people of Gotham are trapped in the city. And Bane and his army are not only patrolling the streets, uh, keeping everyone in line and punishing any rebels, but they're also parading this neutron bomb throughout the city. And their plan is to eventually detonate this bomb and to destroy the city. So if you've seen the film, you might remember, Um, if not, then you can imagine, that every scene around this part of the film is dark and gray. It really seems as though there's no hope for the people. Batman looked defeated, he was in prison, uh, but eventually he returns to Gotham and he frees Gotham's police force who've all been trapped in the sewers by Bane and suddenly it looks as though there is hope. But the problem is that the neutron bomb Is still in the city, and there's no way of disabling the detonator. So, of course, what does Batman do? He brings his bat aircraft and he attaches the neutron bomb to it. Shortly before the detonator is is about to go off, he flies the aircraft with the neutron bomb out of the city, out over the ocean, and there's this huge explosion, and the city is saved. Well, that's a little bit like what Jesus did how well this in the batman film was something that only batman could do here was this bomb that was causing such misery in the city and eventually would have destroyed the city and only batman could remove it and save the city only batman could carry the bomb away and destroy it and deliver the city from destruction now when jesus suffered on the cross he was doing something that only He could do. When Jesus suffered on the cross, He wasn't only suffering with us, but He was suffering for us. And because He suffered for us, He is able to deliver us from our suffering. That isn't to say that Jesus delivers us from all of our suffering now, but for those who trust in Him, He has removed suffering's ultimate end from us now, that's the point that the writer is making back in hebrews 2 verse 14 and 15 he says since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." It is a very human thing to fear death. In fact, we're enslaved to our fear of death, the writer points out. We're in bondage to the fear of death, naturally. Why? Not because of the fear of the process of dying, but because deep down we know that death cannot be the end for us, and we fear what comes after it. In particular, we fear that we have not lived a good enough life to face God at the end of our life and be met with a favourable verdict. It's interesting that we all know deep down that someone else will deliver the verdict on our lives. I think this is really clear when we go to funerals. You don't write your own eulogy. You don't engrave the words on your own headstone. Someone else does that. Someone else delivers the verdict on your life, as it were. And we know that to be true on a bigger scale. We know that when we die and face God, we are not the ones who get to deliver the verdict. And so as human beings, we're enslaved to this fear of death in that sense. And this is what the writer means when he speaks of the devil having the power of death. What does he mean by that? How does the devil have the power of death? Well, we know that the devil can't kill anybody, can't do anything to anybody unless God permits him. That's really clear at the beginning of the book of Job in the Old Testament. But what the devil can do is speak. He's the great accuser, the father of lies. And in his words, he has the power of death because he can stand before God alongside us, as it were, as we stand before God. And he can list all the sins that we have committed. And he can say to God, you are a just and a fair God. Therefore, this person deserves to be condemned. This person deserves death. But because the Lord Jesus suffered for us, suffered on our behalf, because he suffered under the curse of God for our sins, then the devil's words of death have no power. He can stand alongside us, as it were, as we stand before God and he can reel off all our sins. But as he's about to get to his conclusion that we deserve death, God as it were, stops him. And he says, everything that you have listed truly did happen. But here is my son who has suffered in their place. He has made atonement for their sins. And it would not be just of me to demand further atonement for their sins, because he is the perfect savior and the perfect sacrifice made perfect through suffering and therefore satan you've lost your case and your words have no power that is why jesus suffered so that he might deliver us from suffering under the condemnation of god and that is what he has done How should we respond to this? We should trust him. In Jesus, the writer says we have a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We should trust him in our sufferings because he himself has suffered. We should trust him in our temptations because he himself has, temp- has been tempted and has endured. Well, we've been reminded tonight from Hebrews 2 that the Son of God truly did become man. Why did he become man? So that he might suffer. Why did he suffer? So that he might deliver us from the suffering that our sins deserve and therefore we can trust him in the midst of all that we suffer now.